Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Tarek. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two heist movies focused on the relationship between an attractive female insurance investigator and a male thief, who has also played James Bond in other movies, who steals an expensive painting by a famous artist. It's Entrapment versus The Thomas Crown Affair. Let the caper begin. So, as usual, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. Now, on the 30th of April, 1999, Entrapment was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. An insurance agent is sent by her employer to track down and help capture an art thief. Gabe, did you originally catch Entrapment when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? With a one-liner like that, how could I miss it? (laughs) We often talk about those IMDb synopses. And I mean, this one is uh, remarkably to the point, uh, stripped back. (laughs) Stripped back as uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones in a skin-tight leotard whilst weaving between lasers. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's right. Fake lasers. 1999. Yeah, I definitely saw this at the movies. I must have seen it at the old uh, George Street cinemas or, you know, when it was Hoyt's Greater Union and Village back then. Um, I have to say, given that it was 21 years ago approximately, I don't have a huge recollection of the experience of seeing the film itself, but I definitely caught this at the movies and I must have seen it a couple of times since, right? It was one of those movies that was sort of a a mainstay on uh, 8.30pm movie Sunday night on Channel 9 or whatever probably throughout the you know, early 2000s when they still put movies on Sunday nights or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I can't say the experience of, of seeing it itself left some sort of indelible impression on me. Yeah, I myself caught this in that glory time of free movies in 1999. And once again, here we are with yet another film from, I guess, the late 90s to early noughties, which was, you know, a classic twin movie. So, that era where it was all about the high concept that other movies shared. So I saw this myself at a commercial uh, cinema, and I recall the artwork was quite uh, captivating at the time. They really, really leaned in hard into those images of Catherine Zeta-Jones in the leotard. So it was kind of pictured that really sort of sexy thriller. Uh, And you're right, I think this has played a billion times back in the day when you had movies playing on Sunday nights on TV. So I think I've seen the entire film probably five, six times in its entirety, but seen vignettes, snippets off TV multiple more times. Yeah, it's interesting because it makes you feel like you've seen the movie a lot, but then when you actually sit down to watch the whole thing, you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, He's an FBI agent. You're like, oh, I don't remember seeing that or remembering that in the, you know, five times I'd seen it in parts. Yeah, totally, totally. (laughs) Uh, So, later on, on the 6th of August 1999, The Thomas Crown Affair was released, and here's its synopsis from IMDb. A very rich and successful playboy amuses himself by stealing artwork, 
but may have met his match in a seductive detective. Mm. So, Gabe, walk me through when and how you first watched The Thomas Crown Affair. AKA Seductive Detective. (laughs) If there's not a movie called Seductive Detective, they should make one. It actually feels like one of those... Chinese ghost story or sex and Zen, you know, like it'd be a, uh, again, something that would be on SBS, which is our world movies channel in the late 90s, you know, and a double with <laughs> The Weather Woman Returns. I saw The Thomas Crown Affair on DVD in Paris, I think. How exotic, Paris. Yeah, that's right. I, I presume this is how everyone watches The Thomas Crown Affair uh, while staying in a... <laughs> apartment in Paris in the year 2000. So I didn't see this at the movies, but I saw it in a very cosmopolitan, uh, globe-trotting way that I feel is suitable to the uh, to the film. What about you? Uh, well, before we get to me, did you follow that up with perhaps watching um, on VHS uh, The Italian Job whilst in Milan? <laughs> no, actually, I can tell you what other movies, like weirdly I remember, I watched Joel Schumacher's Flawless, that um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robert De Niro movie where Robert De Niro has a stroke and Philip Seymour Hoffman, as his sort of drag queen neighbour, comes to look after him. I watched that in Paris and I watched Boogie Nights for the first time. So what a a triple, triple evening, a triple, what do you call that? What an evening of cinema that was. <laughs> There's a whole podcast series that could be done on watching movies in exotic places or memorable locations where you saw certain movies. Like, I'm sure someone has seen Dunkirk or something which is definitely designed for IMAX, you know, on a plane on a three by four inch TV screen. And for some of them, it was perhaps memorable, but there's certainly a different experience you have when you see a movie in a really unique location where your brain's already recalibrated in a different way as it is. It just makes it extra memorable. That's right. I actually watched Dunkirk on a on an iPhone while crossing the British Channel. Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so I saw the Thomas Crown Affair at the same cinema in Canberra only a few months after Entrapment. Actually, I've got a feeling that maybe Entrapment was released after Thomas Crown Affair, uh, but this is back in the day when we didn't quite have those same day and date releases around the world where films were more or less released simultaneously. Um, like nowadays, I want to try and avoid piracy and also make the most of global social media advertising. So it makes sense to try and release the movies at the same time. But I've got a feeling perhaps Entrapment was released a bit later in Australia. So I might have seen these films back to front. But same deal, free movie, local commercial multiplex, and I loved it. Um, As a general point, I've got to say, I have been looking forward to doing this podcast episode for so long. Like, I love both these films for very different reasons. Uh, I think they're both great films, which we'll get to. I think one's definitely better than the other and the guilty pleasures, but... Because I like these films so much, I do recall quite vividly my first experience seeing them. And then I've seen these films again on TV and on DVD multiple times, and a bit like Entrapment, actually. (laughs) I've fast-forwarded to particular scenes and watched those scenes (laughs) and forgot those. Is this why you feel guilty? (laughs) We'll get to that. And forgotten those kind of scenes that link them in between. Um, So, yeah, there are a few award nominees for the Memento Award later on. 
So before we get to the review, let's just do a little bit of a quick uh, history lesson as to how we got here, a bit of a shallow dive into Hollywood history. So Trapman was actually written by Ronald Bass, quite a famous screenwriter of the 80s, 90s. I think he was behind Rain Man, wasn't he, Gabe? Uh, Rain Man. Did he write What Dreams May Come, maybe? Yes, I think he did. What else did he write? Stepmom. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and My Best Friend's Wedding. Wow, some real classics. Uh, Dangerous Minds? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, after a bit of uh, intense research, and when I say intense research, I mean a bit of light Googling, there isn't actually really much to say about the evolution of Entrapment to the silver screen. It's not a film that actually has a checkered history. It wasn't put in turnaround. It wasn't rewritten by 14 people. Essentially, it's a film that was, you know, the idea of a couple of people, a couple of writers, and they made it. Just a very smooth Hollywood operation. As for the Thomas Crown Affair, that's actually a remake of a uh, 60s film, which also starred Faye Dunaway. And although it's a bit different from the original, which I haven't seen, it had been, I think, speculated to be remade at some stage for a while. But again, once they found the right star, it pushed ahead and it just appears once again in this podcast series to be just pure serendipity that both these films were made and released at the same time. Yeah, it's interesting that Thomas Crown Affair is a remake because it feels like the sort of movie that you could quite easily remake every 20 years and you just plug in the new, slightly, I'm going to say slightly older stars, you know, because it sort of lends itself to being a little bit uh, refined in that way, <laughs> you know, uh, like like dry-aged meat. No, wait. But, you know, like you could easily do it every every 20 years and it'd still feel kind of oddly fresh or whatever. Like the plot itself doesn't tire out and it's just more about the sort of sexiness of the day. Exactly. I mean, this. I thought exactly the same thing watching this film. I thought, okay, it was made sort of, you know, 30 years after the original and now we're 21 par- years past the remake. You could definitely remake it and just sort of mix up the heist and if, if not do a sequel, just remake the film because – it's just a great premise and unlike Entrapment, it's not of its era. Entrapment very much is based around the millennium. Um, that's sort of like- <laughs> Yeah, totally. It, it's kind of dated in that sense, whereas The Thomas Crown Affair just feels timeless in terms of its story but also its execution. But let's just start with our review, first of all, of Entrapment. So over to you, Gabe. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And tell me- was this a good execution of the same premise it shares with the Thomas Crown Affair? Yeah, I think this is a pretty pretty entertaining movie. I mean, both of these films, broadly, are incredibly breezy in a good way. Like, they just whip by, the, the heists are fun, the leads are charismatic, you know, they bang in enough sort of plot twists to, to keep you on your toes as a viewer. They're both... Nicely enough made. I mean, I think Thomas Crown Affair is a better made movie than Entrapment. And interestingly, I think I remembered Entrapment being slightly slicker than it is. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not poorly made or anything by any stretch. I think I just recalled it being somehow m- more, more cinematic. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. At the time, the film had a feeling or a sensation of being really slick. And part of that's, I think, based on the nature of the heists and the costumes they wear and the tech they use. Mm. Like I think about those scenes where, for example, they wear those dry wetsuits and have like special goggles 
uh, for seeing infrared and it almost looks like they're Navy SEALs in like a Michael Bay movie. You know that mm. classic scene where the Navy SEALs emerge from the water in Bad Boys 2? Sure. Um, like I sort of think back to the film feeling very modern like that and I think as well because it was set around the time of the millennium uh, from 1999 to 2000 ticking over and the crime is very much based on that. I think there was that vibe that the film was in- incredibly contemporary and modern, but just based on its premise as well. But you're right, when you rewatch it, it doesn't have any particular stylish flourishes that are exceptionally slick or anything like that. Um, no, yeah. But tell me, as a concept, because these films share a pretty amazingly similar concept, I mean, it is remarkable that they ostensibly don't have any connection to each other, and this wasn't a rush by two competing Hollywood studios to try and make the same movie. Like, one's a remake and one's entirely different. And maybe maybe Ronald Bass was inspired originally by the original Thomas Crown Affair and the other studio got wind of that and decided to go, you know what, let's just remake the original uh, rather than let these guys get away with making a modern version of the same idea. But this concept is so similar. Like, this is a classic twin movie. They're both released you know, within months of each other. Do you think it's a good version of this idea? Because this one has the romantic element, but there are some major differences. Like this is probably closer to a protege-mentor dynamic. Well, I guess the leads are in Entrapment. There is quite an age gap between them. Uh, So, yes, I guess it has the mentor-protege dynamic kind of by virtue of that, obviously also because Connery's character is taking um, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones under his wing and teaching her, like, how to be a high-line art heister. But um, but I guess that age that age gap certainly, certainly exacerbates that feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great execution of a concept and it's interesting that both of these movies are sort of romantic heist movies. Um, and I'd say The Thomas Crown Affair, maybe more than Entrapment, is really a romance film. Like it's a, the there's only two heists, I think, in Thomas Crown Affair and they're spaced quite far apart. And there's a huge chunk of the middle of that movie that is just Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo, who are impeccably cast, playing sexy eyes across, you know, wherever he takes, like wherever he flies into Cuba. Is it Cuba? I don't know. And I feel like you don't really get as many of those those movies these days. Like, what was the last sexy heist movie? After the Sunset, which is basically a spiritual sequel to yeah, well, Thomas Crown Affair. That was the one. I, I mean, surely surely that wasn't the most recent one. Surely there's been some other, but, you know. You are, you are right, though. Like, for example, recent heist films, I think of like The Hurricane Heist, Den of Thieves. Uh, all these films are just infused with machismo and very much owe their legacy to Michael Mann's heat. I can't think of a film which is that Bonnie and Clyde style sexy times. Uh, and and it is, you're right, in that the Thomas Crown Affair has the opening heist, and we are kind of jumping the gun and jumping to our review, but I think it makes sense in comparing the premise behind these two movies. Mm. The Thomas Crown Affair starts with that heist and then there's, it leads to another big heist, but most of the film is the cat and mouse game between Rene Russo and Pierce Brosnan's characters. As you say, the romantic tussle, and 
when they do actually get together, it's a case of will one betray the other? Totally, uh, totally. Whereas in Entrapment, the betrayal is less obvious because at the very start of the movie, she's an insurance investigator, but then she reveals herself to be actually a master thief herself. And she's pretty cocky. And there's a few scenes where, for example, he shows her up uh, and tests her metal and tests her loyalty to him. There's a scene where she's describing a thief, a robbery, and how she got away with the painting. And then he reveals he actually has the painting and she feels devastated and a little bit humiliated. Another scene where they're on top of the castle and he's sort of threatening to throw her off the edge uh, just to try and test whether she actually is on his side or not. But more or less it seems clear that the investigator part is a cover and she's a thief unlike Rene Russo's character. So as a result, there are more heists. Basically, in each heist there is, they're testing each other and becoming closer and better, both closer professionally and romantically. And I think that's probably the key distinction between the two movies. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably probably right. I mean, I guess for that reason, uh, in comparing the two, I probably like Thomas Crown Affair more because I actually liked that it spent a big chunk of time actually just on the, you know, um, Pierce Brosnan and R- Rene Rousseau falling about his mansion while spilling champagne on one another and, and laughing Um just because I feel like I've seen a lot of heist movies um, and that's not to say I haven't seen a lot of romance movies. You know, I have. I love that genre. But um, it just made it feel just a little bit fresher. And I guess to our the previous thing, you know, like off the top of my head, Focus. Remember that movie Focus with Will Smith and I do. Margot Robbie? Great film. You know, that's, a, I, guess, I guess, a recent sort of sexy heist movie. Baby Driver, maybe? Uh, but there's just not a lot of them. Uh, Bound? Yeah, yeah. Bound, definitely. Um, Bound the lesbian robbery caper. The, the, yeah, the Wachowski oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. movie, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- and maybe Out of Sight, you know. Out of Sight's a great one. I wouldn't call that a heist film as such. I'd call that more like a – it's very similar in, to the Thomas Crown Affair in the sense that it's a cop versus a thief, but – I mean, is he actually trying to pull up a heist at the same time as falling in love with her or is it more a case that he's on the run? I suppose he is. Well, kind of. They rob Albert Brooks's house at the end of that. But I guess they're not like they're low-level heisters just trying to pull diamonds out of a fish tank. You know, it doesn't have the kind of sweeping uh, majesty of, uh, you know, stealing a, a Rembrandt. I can't remember. Is it a Rembrandt? No, he's not stealing a Rembrandt. A Matisse? Whatever it is in... Um, whatever, whoever the fancy famous dead painter in Thomas Crown Affair is. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, where were we? Tell me, what did you like um, particularly about Entrapment, like re-watching it for this podcast episode, what was it about that jumped out and then we'll change the lanes and pull it apart for and critique it? Well, it's interesting, earlier you said, you know, it being set on the eve of the... Y2K, the, what's it called, the Millennium Virus? Is that what we called it back in the day? Uh, no, it was a Millennium Bug, wasn't it? Bug, the Millennium Bug, of course. And, you know, you might say, oh, well, that would date the film. And I think if you were writing it then, that would definitely be a concern. Like, if we write this now, will this date it? But I actually really like that it's set on the back of something so kind of... Um, I wouldn't say iconic because it turned out to be just like a, you know, a fart in the breeze or whatever, or 
it turned out that a whole bunch of people did a huge amount of work behind the scenes to make sure that the Millennium Bug didn't cause some stratospheric, you know, shutdown. But nonetheless, I, it's really great watching a movie that's, that is, is of its time and place in that way. Um, what do you think of setting it in 1999 like, and having the plot hinge on uh, the Millennium Bug? Well, I think the actual point is is that it's not set uh, around the the potential trouble of the Millennium Bug because the bug was an issue where it was about, you know, for example, certain computers had only been designed to count up to 1999 and so once it ticked over to 2000, there was a fear they would corrupt in some way and traffic lights would fail and major banks would go down and so on. And I thought I remembered this being the cause or the issue with the film. It's actually not when you rewatch it. It's more of the fact that when they change to 2000, I guess they've got to reset in some respect. But all they're doing is stealing 10 seconds of time, which I guess you could define as a bug in some sense. But I feel like it's more just a slight anomaly. Like it doesn't feel like... At the time, it was definitely a doomsday vibe that the bugs going to basically bring down the earth and be like some sort of science fiction novel come to life. A dystopia would somehow unfold. So I didn't quite – I mean, they didn't even mention the word bug, as I recall, did they? They just mentioned that when they change from 99 to 2000, uh, the, the, the clock sort of would reset and that it's about to shave milliseconds of time. And the way it's described in the movie, it almost feels like you could do that at any point on New Year's Eve, <laughs> like at any New Year's Eve. So I guess technically it relates to the Millennium Bug, but they don't lean too hard in, and they don't actually use that vernacular at all, as I recall. Am I right recalling that? Yeah, I think so. And you're right. It, it's not set. It uses an element of the the time to to hinge, I guess not a huge plot point, on. Um, I think I remember in like 1998, there was a, a movie in development starring Chris O'Donnell and Sean Connery that was about the Y2 bug. And I think that would feel kind of goofy and dated now. But 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 just sort of infusing it with a little bit of that, um, a little bit of that time and place, you know. Well, speaking of time and place, apparently the original screenplay was actually set during the handover from uh, Hong Kong to China. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was in 1997, I think. Now, the film was actually set, I think, in, ultimately in Malaysia, wasn't it? Well, that's where the 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 final heist is at. Right. And I think that's where Maury Chaikin's character is based, who is the sort of corpulent fixer. Right. Or whatever it is, you know, the, the, the art dealer or... Uh, the- that's right, that's right. Well, apparently McTiernan wanted to actually give it a sense of time and place, and so he switched, and he didn't think the handover. No, John Emile McTiernan is Thomas Crown. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. So John 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 Emil wanted to actually choose a point that he thought would be more dramatic, um, which is interesting because to me, I suppose you could choose the handover back to China as also being an element. I suppose for a less sophisticated audience who aren't interested in geopolitics. It's just cleaner to say, yep, you guys have heard about the Millennium Bug. You've heard about computers potentially crashing. It's like a shorthand. You'll get this. Whereas the handover doesn't seem as cleanly linked, perhaps, to computers and technology. No. And what about the uh, what about the leads in this? Did you think they had simmering chemistry? Well, it's funny you say that. I've been dying to get to this point because the chemistry of the main leads in both films is definitely a discussion point. 
And I recall being in my, I don't know, early 20s, early 20s, I think, at this stage of my life, back in 1999. I recall then, without even caring much about, you know, sexual politics, that that was an issue in almost every single review, is that there was an age gap where Sean Connery is 39 years older than Catherine Zeta-Jones and people just felt like, ah, oh, come on, are we still doing this? Are we still doing the guy whose love interest is young enough to be his daughter? And I get that, 100%. I agree with that criticism by most film critics. I did think there was some sexual chemistry between the characters, but, I mean, to me, it's just them trying to sell something which is really hard to buy. I did feel at the time that Catherine Zeta-Jones, whilst not my, quote, type, unquote, I thought she did radiate sexuality on the screen. And I do think that Sean Connery has incredible um, personality and is just magnetic as a presence himself. But I think they both individually had chemistry which just sprung out of the screen, but they didn't with each other, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. I mean, and this was, you know, 1998 and 1999 were the Catherine Zeta-Jones real halcyon period. I mean, when she popped out in The Mask of Zorro, um, you know, she she obviously kind of exploded and in popularity and stuff. And, you know, I guess if you go back and watch probably the sort of sketch comedy shows that parody movies or movies that parody movies, I can guarantee you the the sequence where she's sliding under the, uh, what do you call it, the, the red strings. It was pretty iconic at the time. Um, I'd say it's iconic now. If you basically did a parody right now, a spoof movie, or you did a homage, so you ripped off a scene, I would say that scene is, is well, not quite as iconic, but almost as iconic as the famous shot of Tom Cruise descending in the first Mission Impossible film. Like, it's a classic heist move. What do you think? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, and, I mean, I guess then the leads in Thomas Crown Affair, they're only one year one year apart. Oh, oh yeah, exactly. But hang on, before you leave that, let's just stick with the lasers again for a second. Okay. When you rewatched it, did you really feel, in terms of being 21 years later, that this was definitely of the era of those Michael Bay movies and stuff where it is so much the male gaze of the camera? And I say that as someone who appreciates the sexiness of the scene, but that camera is sitting on her ass as she's weaving in between those test lasers, the red string, and it cuts to him going, you know, with that kind of that that sound that he makes in almost in a, a Scottish accent, like, oh. This one, he's going, he's going. <sighs> <sighs> but, but basically no, he's not the entire audience, perhaps male and female, are all Sean Connery in that moment, just admiring her flexibility and poise. But <laughs> the cameraman is zooming in on her bum and it definitely feels of the era. I'm not saying they wouldn't shoot those scenes now, but- you know, if you look at, like, say, films like The Fast and Furious, it's the same kind of thing, right? It's a low camera angle on the bum, uh, almost kind of dolling in behind the character. It is a very sexual camera shot. And I think that's one of the reasons why that scene is so memorable. It has those shots carefully crafted. And she's very good in terms of her poise and control. And it's a really cool scene. Like, But don't you think that's, like, one of the most memorable shots of the movie, for better or worse? 
Oh, definitely, definitely. It's certainly the 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 sequence that the film is probably most well known for, as you say, for for better or worse. And you know, if they were making this movie now, would they shoot it the exact same way? Probably not. But I bet they'd still try and make it sexy. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I think about how I saw uh, Batman v Superman, Justice League, and then I saw Wonder Woman, the first film directed by a man, second by a woman, the same character, the same outfit. And I became really aware of the nature of the male gaze in camera angles when I compare those two films to each other, where one film sort of is like leering at Wonder Woman's ass a lot and all of the Amazonians in that movie are like basically wearing like gold bikinis like they're in a wrestling, you know, a wrestling um, ring or something like that. But then the, in the female-directed Wonder Woman, all the Amazonians are wearing much more functional clothes and it's not just about having like midriff and like gold bras but it's much more practical armor still really sexy that's the intention of both movies but one is certainly much more exploitative in comparison and that was something that i then became really aware of when re-watching both these movies um it's interesting which actually on that point do you want to just sort of like jump to the thomas crown affair on that point about the age gap and the depiction of nudity and sexuality? Well, I guess the Thomas Crown Affair definitely feels, I mean, the entrapment doesn't feel exploitative. It's definitely not an exploitation movie in the same way that some- No, it's not. You know, uh, tits and violence, uh, gratuitous, you know, whatever. But but yeah, it definitely feels like the Thomas Crown Affair is classier in its way. And even though it actually has nudity, for instance- um, Well, that's the thing about it, right? Like, it's not- uh, it's pretty risque. Like for a mainstream movie, I was actually surprised re-watching it. And I've seen this film a dozen times. How much nudity in context of both just nudity outside a sex scene, but also in a sex scene there is. Like it's pretty risque, right? Oh, yeah. Both 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 leads uh, get their kid off. You see uh, Pierce's bum, you know. Um, and, I mean, I guess I kind of like that about it. You know, I think both... Both the leads in this were 45 years old or something. And only there's only one year difference between them. And, I mean, even that seems kind of interesting. I, I, you know, there's not a lot of movies where, particularly the female lead, I mean, there's obviously tons of movies where the the, the leading man is some old geezer, like Entrapment, but where the, the romantic female lead in a big mainstream heist movie is 44 years old, but actually, it all felt like that made it just real classy for some reason. Like, young people are stupid, um, you know, but, like, uh, ageing the aging the main characters up somehow gives it a kind of, like, continental vibe, cosmopolitan, <laughs> don't you think? Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, I love Entrapment, but the age gap is an issue in that film and I don't have an issue so much so that I don't enjoy it for that reason. But she's in her 20s and she's kind of depicted as being... Really empowered, really smart, but I guess just being naive because she's young. And that happens a few occasions when she's humiliated by him uh, for being a bit too cocky. He's in his 60s and that's why there's that more of that mentor-protege relationship to their sexual chemistry. I agree with you about the Thomas Crown Affair. I should say, out of the gate, I love, I love, I love this movie so much. This would be one of my top 20 movies of all time. Really? It's a real, yep. Wow. Real guilty pleasure. Yeah, I, I love it. But why describe it as a guilty pleasure? 
I don't know. I, I guess that's the thing. Drill down on that. Probably because most people wouldn't, yeah, because most people wouldn't put it in their top 20. See, no one says, oh, Goodfellas is a guilty pleasure because everyone agrees Goodfellas or Heat or Apocalypse Now are universally great films that have made top 50 lists around the world by both film critics and archives, museums, etc. right? To me, Guilty Pleasure is a film that everyone else sees as disposable and you elevate it to be much higher than most people. So you feel guilty about it because you think most people don't appreciate it as much as you do and you can see its flaws and you can see all its problems, but you enjoy it in spite of that. I think that's very well said, Ben. <laughs> that's very very nicely defined. I was trying to catch you out, but boy, <laughs> you just turned that shit around. And- oh, it's, it's, it's like the chemistry, but I'm Rene Russo. <laughs> no, you're Rene Russo. I'm Pierce Brosnan. Well, make up your mind. <laughs> um, look, I love, to get back to the um, maturity, I guess, of the film, the Thomas Crown Affair, I love that these characters, I think they were both about 42, 43, but I love that they're the same age. I love that they're over 40. I remember watching at the time and thinking that, you know, early 40s was like so far away and they seemed so mature. And <laughs> yeah, totally. it's so funny because I'm now the same age or older than those characters, which is weird to think about. And I just, I love the idea that they're the same age because that's such a rare thing. The fact that you actually have to make that a comment is so indicative of previous Hollywood casting where the male was always 10, 20, 30 years older. So, Straight away, they get that right. I love that the not only are they the same age, but the female is over 40. Again, rarely happens. I think Renee Russo is a very attractive woman, but she wouldn't fall into the category of being um, Catherine Zeta-Jones-like in that sense. She's, I would say, unclassically attractive. Some might even say handsome, which is not a derogatory comment. But what I'm saying is that she would be the sort of person that has ordinarily been cast in those types of roles. But she is incredibly sexy in this film and it comes back to her performance, her character on the page in the screenplay, um, her dress. Like, she's styled immaculately. There's a scene at the start of the film where she wears this kind of like this black dress with like a white shirt, which looks like some really awesome outfit that I've never seen on the streets before, I never saw on a catwalk. I'm not a fashion connoisseur at all, but... It looks so sophisticated and also she's so damn intelligent. She comes across as being incredibly empowered, making her own choices. And again, not something that always happens in these types of movies. In fact, you could do a spin-off of this movie with just her. And I think that almost the same audience would turn up to see the movie as the one which had the good-looking James Bond guy. So that's a huge testament to her acting, um, the direction of the movie and the screenplay, that if you're coming up against the James Bond of the time, and Pierce Brosnan is one of the favourite Bonds of mine and much beloved by many people, to basically match him toe-to-toe I think is an incredible achievement. So I, I just adore that this movie for those reasons. I just love her as a character and an actor. I think she's just heavenly. I think she's fantastic. Uh, I mean, the the 90s were truly a great time for, for, for Rene Rousseau, weren't they? Like, she's in some good movies. Get Shorty. Lethal Weapon. <laughs> Lethal Weapon 3. <laughs> um, 
But um, no, they're, they're really good in this. And uh, I think without jumping too far ahead, it's certainly a movie that has aged incredibly well because of that. It's almost a movie that's got better with age. You know, you, maybe you, it's the sort of film that felt like it was taken for granted in a way at the time. Oh, look, if you look at the, what's at the movies right now, mainly superhero movies uh, or anything based on previous intellectual property, this film would just blow people's minds if it was released now. In fact, you can release this film now during COVID-19 when, you know, they're basically releasing old films to try and get some people back into the cinema. And I, I think it would go gangbusters. This to me is the sort of movie that they only, only now make as a TV show because it's a film that I kind of think is like one and done. Like you can do a sequel to it and I do think that After the Sunset is the sequel unofficially of this movie, but it does feel very contained. It's closed off beautifully and it just feels like the sort of film aimed at an audience certainly over – 25, if not 35. I mean, accessible to or for, you know, targeted demographics, but it does feel like an adult movie, which they just don't release the cinema these days. Either they make a big blockbuster with special effects or they do a really low-key award-winning, you know, drama like um, The Favourite, great film, by the way, or any of those uh, monarch-related British period films. But this sort of film, no. In fact, even at the time I recall in the reviews, so this is 21 years ago, I recall in the reviews they actually called out this. They actually said this is one of the few movies that's actually aimed at adults. And that was 21 years ago. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because people complain about that now, and I guess they were probably complaining that about that then. Um, even, I suppose, just having him heisting famous works of art and you know, them just throwing away the names of the artists, of which I all forgot at the beginning of this podcast, or Monet or whoever they're stealing. I also love, though, how they undercut that because um, I think Dennis Leary is quite well cast in, in this. And I like how the Thomas Crown Affair also has enough kind of like self-awareness to basically have his character in there saying how kind of frivolous and bullshit it all is anyway. You know, he calls like swells of paint that are important to some very silly rich people. You know, and his final line about while you were, Plotsing about in the Mediterranean or whatever, trying to catch this high line heist guy with your romantic bullshit. I was out, you know, uh, stopping, you know, wife beaters or whatever it is. And I kind of like that it, it, it still grounds itself with like, this is still frivolous bullshit. That's so true. I mean, he is the audience in some ways as an audience surrogate, isn't he? Like, most people do look at art and just make smart ass comments like, oh, my five year old could have created that. And in some respects, I do feel he's basically a surrogate for that particular perspective. Uh, it does feel very indulgent. It's almost like a meta-commentary on the movie itself, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I really liked I, – I, I like that about it. Um, and what do you think about the, the, the heists versus each other? Like the final Thomas Crown affair heist with uh, Pierce dressing up in the various Apple face man hats – What's that painting called? Um, the bowler hat and the apple? Is that the one called The Son of Man? Uh, Son of Man, yeah, yeah, where he dresses as the Son of Man and yeah. it has that gr that great uh, yeah. song over the top of it. Um, 
that they use in Miami Vice as well, the film Miami Vice. Do they? No way. The movie that I love, one of my favourite Michael Mann movies. Yeah, yeah. What's the name of the song, though? Um, it's kind of that... Um, oh, they do too. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It does feel very um, Latin American, doesn't it? Like, is it the scene where they're set in Cuba in Miami Vice? Where is Dan? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's in... Like, I'd forgotten that song was in the film, in The Thomas Crown Affair. And I was like, oh, shit, where have I heard this? Um, and I'm sure I'm sure it's Miami. I'm sure it's Miami Vice. Yeah, it's funny. I, I actually am the reverse of that. So when I first heard it in Miami Vice, I was, like, really surprised because that was only about five years after this movie. So basically a very short period of time to use the same iconic tune. But I love it. So this is the final scene where he dresses up like the Son of Man, which is a 1964 painting by the Belgium surrealist painter René Magritte. And to me, this is, I guess, the equivalent of the laser scene in Entrapment, except this is actually higher stakes and being at the end of the film, there's a huge crescendo. So to answer your question, I love it. Yeah. I just think it's so clever and I love how it just builds slowly. And I it's yeah. I feel like we're kind of like in the same uh perspective as uh I can't recall his name, but the black detective. Uh what's his name? Oh, uh, is it Donald Faison? Yes, yes, yeah. Is that who it is? As Donald Faison's making the realizations. No, Frankie Faison, sorry, Frankie Faison, my bad. Frankie Faison. And then so is Dennis Leary. We the audience are the same. And then it kind of then cuts into the perspective of Thomas Crown himself. Mm. And now with him on this journey. Um, I love it. Like, I think it's realistic. I think it's doable. I think it's clever. I love that they could have done that scene and had him just disguised as wearing, you know, funny glasses and a fake nose or something. But to choose that painting, um, like, it's easy to do. It makes sense to do in the sense that getting bowler hats is reasonably easy. But it's just clever. Like, I really admire the scene. Like, I get everything right and the music to me is just the cherry on the top because yeah it's great it drives that scene particularly i don't know whether they edited the movie to that music but ah it just works beautifully i'm doing those chef fingers you know the <laughs> it feel it feels like they i don't i doubt they you know were playing the song back on set but it certainly feels like once they found that in the edit they probably said let's build this around the track because you don't really get a lot of movies, I guess, that really score a sequence like that to a song. Um, and in this case, I remember it's called Cinnerman, Cinnerman um, by, on IMDb it says by Nina Simone. Um, but I think both Thomas Crown Affair and Mummy Vice have slightly remixed versions. With a male singer, I think. Of it. Yeah. But, um, but, um, but it's so great and it just feels like it builds and builds and, you know, all the little sequences where Rene Rousseau's character, um, she thinks he's going to get caught. She's sort of happy he's getting away. Dennis Leary and her have the sort of like interplay. Um, it's a really great, great sequence. Um, it turns, you know, I don't think while you're watching it, you know how it's going to unfold. Um, that is to say, like, you know, in Entrapment, I think you know broadly that they'll succeed or whatever. But there's a real joy, I guess, in the Thomas Crown Affair of the how, you know, that how has he planned this to, how has Thomas planned for this to 
to happen that you know the sprinklers will wash away the the paint and reveal the painting and so on. It's really great. It's really great. Isn't that the uh, classic trope of any great heist movie that there's a heist plan, the plan's really smart, something goes wrong, and they have to pivot to an alternative plan. So an entrapment, for example, he has a plan B, and the plan B is with a little micro parachute jumping down a ventilation shaft and escaping that way, although he gets caught. You don't actually find out how he escaped. But there's always a plan B. Um, and the plan B might actually be pre-designed like an entrapment or they kind of have to like uh, pivot on the run, on the go, on the fly. In the Thomas Crown Affair, nothing goes wrong at all, which is kind of unusual, isn't it? Like nothing goes wrong at all, but it's as rewarding anyway because you don't know how they're going to pull the heist off. So you're being surprised consistently as it unfolds. I yeah, I, yeah. That's really interesting. You say that though, because any screenwriting book or whatever would say, you know, it's important in the moments of the, the the final thing or whatever for something to go wrong, and the heroes will have to scramble to now adapt because. But this really doesn't do that, does it? No, it doesn't at all. Um, and maybe that's because we weren't uh, given a glimpse of the plan by the character beforehand. So in some of those movies. They share the plan with you and then, of course, things go wrong and they have to deviate from the plan. Maybe because you don't see the plan beforehand, you therefore just go on the journey as a passenger. It's much more of a passive experience, but because the plan is so good and so unpredictable and you just have no sense of how he's going to pull this off, as you said before, that you just go with it. Like It's still entertaining and still tense. Um, I've got to actually raise a few issues, though, about the, the two robberies in this movie because I love this movie so much, but I want to hear your take on my two gripes because okay. they have bugged me for 21 years Wow, and it drives me crazy. So let's start with the first one. This would be one of my top five plot holes in movies of all time, and that's coming from me because I'm so invested in this movie that it frustrates me. But you know the scene at the start in the first heist where there's like a dummy crew of Romanians that weirdly speak Polish that are basically the four guys so Thomas Crown can steal that painting and he grabs it off the wall and it's really slick the move in which he pulls it off the wall and he throws it inside the open briefcase but the painting is twice the width of the closed briefcase. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you just go with it. But because I've seen this film multiple times, there's always this nagging sensation of, well, how did he actually get that painting to fold in the briefcase? And when they actually shot the movie, you actually see him break the frame. So basically break the frame and snap it in two and then fold it inside the briefcase. But apparently the director, John McTinnon, was concerned that audiences might be put off that if they saw him damaging the painting in some way. So he edited the scenes that you only see him putting the painting folded onto the, in the briefcase and then basically quick cut and it snaps in and the briefcase snaps closed. But you actually don't see the wood snapping. But it bugs me. It bugs me because elsewhere, like an Entrapment or Thomas Crown, you do see how they do it, which is they get a knife and they cut along the frame and they roll the painting up, which I think is still really destructive to the painting and kind of, you know, rubs me the wrong way, but at least you see practically how they get such a heavy, wide, tall object through a small space. 
So yeah, maybe that doesn't get most people, but it, it does annoy me. Um, interesting you said that because I Googled that when I was watching it. And are they saying that the canvas, that the, the, the painting is hung on folds? No, I don't think so. I think basically the fan theory anyway is that- Or, or, or the frame folds somehow? Or he just snaps the, the wooden frame that the canvas is affixed to. He snaps the wooden frame. So essentially you've got a frame and basically either there's some device in the briefcase that really quickly snaps or soars, which seems particularly dangerous in terms of damaging the actual canvas, uh, the top and bottom of the frame so it folds like a sandwich or a piece of paper in half to fit it inside the briefcase. Right. It just bugs me because- Anything that's going to be a heist where you potentially damage the very thing you're trying to steal, which is particularly fragile, um, seems disrespectful to the painting and also potentially likely to get the audience pissed off because the character's so, yeah, disrespectful of the of the goal, of the MacGuffin. Yeah. Um, but I, according to the, um, to the research that I had done, this is when they showed the frame actually snapping, they'd actually, they cut that out of the movie. Is that right? So so it's just made slightly unclear. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess I don't know enough about art. I should ask one of my artist friends because they might say, well, maybe the, the, the part around the very edges of the painting people don't see. So if the frame snaps and there's some small amount of wear and tear to the corners. but Yeah, maybe. But I assume that all art on all of the walls of all of the galleries are all forgeries anyway. Oh, well, that's right, yeah. They've all they've all been stolen twice over. Ha- having been in Paris uh, earlier this year and been at the gallery where people are basically sticking their noses within about 10 centimetres, legitimately, so the security guards don't have an issue with this, at some of the most famous paintings of the world by Rembrandt, Van Gogh and so on, you've got to think to yourself, that can't be the original because... They just wouldn't allow that if it was. It just seems insane to have all these heavy breathers and little kids, you know, poking around so closely to these unguarded major artworks. But I assume that the ones hanging on the walls aren't the real McCoy. Um, (laughs) Totally. Also- Mark Margolis. Mark Margolis is out the back there. (laughs) Um, What also bugged me is the second and last heist, which is when the sprinkler system goes off and washes the paint off. I've got exactly the same problem. And again, this is coming from me who loves this movie, but it drives me crazy that the paint is washing off the real McCoy. So it's kind of clever, right? It was always there, like a little pencil there which blocks the uh, security screens from shutting. You know, all smart, all great, but you're literally hosing down a $50 million painting to wash away paint you put on top of it Again, yeah, but really disrespectful to the artwork. <laughs> but Ben, what what price love? I mean, isn't there an earlier scene when he puts a when Thomas Crown puts a painting on a fire? Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. And um, Pierce and Renee are sort of challenging one another, like, will she get up and save the painting that he has sort of set up that is the one that she's looking for, and she doesn't, and he just throws away that it was some I can't remember, you know, like a lesser Matisse or something like that. You know, she's like, oh, you know, he he burnt some, he burnt the Matisse because <laughs> I'm trying to impress her. I know, I know. But, you know. Actually. But it's it's all worth it in the end. I'm now psychoanalyzing myself and realizing that this film is actually really disrespectful to art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but very respectful for Pierce Brosnan's desire to get pussy. <laughs> okay. Speaking of which, this film we mentioned earlier is very mature, but I recall the reviews being as focused on the 
sexual depictions of Rene Russo as it was about the age gap in Entrapment. So we've got a star actor here and there's this scene where she wears a little black dress that's translucent and it's a very sexy moment and very courageous of her to, you know, be so vulnerable on screen. But there's a scene that occurs besides the sex scenes, which are all in context, rolling around, um, very artistically shot, I might add. Although they do that thing where they just keep laughing. It's like, like, ha, 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 ha. That's right, yeah. And like they're pouring champagne, like, ha, ha, ha. It's like, the <laughs> fuck is this weird shit? Have they been laughing for like the nine hours that this film has presented them to be banging for? It's like, come on. They did it for 20 minutes out the back in the cabana and then fucking went and watched a movie. Well, I actually like the idea, though, that the sex is playful in that sense. Like that's Oh, totally, totally. That's great. Like you don't actually see that. Normally what they do is do it like a nine and a half weeks or something where it's all very serious and very focused. I like that it's playful sex. To me, that's what makes their depiction as 40-year-olds more mature, right? Like they don't have to try and mm, mm. be tough guys and sexy girls. They can kind of be vulnerable and play around. So I think that particular trait of the sex scenes is reflective of their ages, their maturity. Mm. But but there's a scene that happens that to me is up there with a particular shot in Swordfish, the film with Hugh Jackman and Halle Berry and John Travolta. Do you know the shot I'm referring to? Oh, the one where they paid Halle Berry like an extra million bucks to get naked or something. To be topless, yeah, where basically she's sitting on an armchair by a pool. Right. And Hugh Jackman walks there, walks in, and she lowers her newspaper, I think it is. Oh. And she's entirely topless and the camera just is focused very clearly on her breasts. And in the scene, I guess to defend the scene if that's even worth doing, Hugh Jackman feels very uncomfortable and she is in power, in control, knowing that he feels uncomfortable seeing her breast nudity. And there, the point is that he's basic. she's making the point that I, I'm empowered and I'm using my nudity to make you uncomfortable to control you. That's sort of meant to be the intention of the scene. I don't think they paid her a million dollars for that reason. <laughs> I think sex sells and it's as simple as that. But there's almost an identical scene in the Thomas Crown Affair on the beach. Oh, yeah. Do you recall the scene where Renee Russo is in a lounge chair reading a book? She lowers a book and she's nude. Well, mm. you see her boobs. And I, she, again, she's also in control, very calm, but- Unlike the other scene, this isn't about humiliation. This is just her being relaxed around her lover. <laughs> lover. <laughs> but it does feel really gratuitous, not because it actually is, but because we've been educated on diet of American movies that are so chaste. The minute you see any nude to you, male or female, outside a sex scene, it feels like it's unnecessary, even though yeah. that's actually what would happen. People do sunbake nude. Totally. So totally. I kind of blame American culture in some respects because it's educated us to only see nudity in sexual depictions when people get nude all the time and it's totally fine. It's not exploitative. It's actually natural. Um, but I feel that movies have warped my sense of representation in that way. I'm aware of it, but it just sort of annoys me. Yeah. I mean, look, I like that there was nudity in the Thomas Crown affair. Like I like, I like movies that are sexy or whatever. I just like it when it feels like equal opportunity nudity. You know, it's like if if the if the women are getting nude, make make the guys get their fucking uh, their tackle out. You know, or 
And you do see Thomas Crown at least do a few kind of, you know, cheeky bum walks as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. To try and level the playing field. People have become very prudish, I guess, around nudity in in movies. You you definitely see it a lot less. And, you know, certainly no one has to get their kid off. Um, And whether you're doing it for true artistic reasons or because they paid you an extra million bucks, fucking get that money. Like, you know, um, uh, it's like the early seasons of... Uh, Game of Thrones were ribald and nudity-filled and violent and kind of dirtier and gross and it became more chaste as it went along and I guess arguably more kind of dull. Um, you know, bring back the kind of dirty sexiness of some of those movies from the 90s. Like, oh, the greatest of them all, wild things, you know. Uh, er- erotic thrillers. We don't get many erotic thrillers anymore. I mean, Thomas Crown Affair is arguably not an erotic thriller. But um, what happened to that genre? Bring it back. We missed it. Well, what happened is it moved to TV, I think. That's what happened. True, true, true. Also, too, by the way, speaking of Game of Thrones, I think that became more chaste just simply for contractual reasons that as the actors became more famous, they got paid more and they ensured that there were no nudity clauses inserted in their contracts because- Totally, totally. But look, to, to be clear, I'm not talking about just uh, what's her face. You played Daenerys, Targaryens or whatever. Like I'm not just like, oh, yeah, get her. I just mean I just mean broadly and generally, you know. Um, it, it, it took them too long to get a, to get a cock on screen, but nonetheless, uh, I don't know. I, no one wants to admit that they like nudity in movies. You know what I mean? No one wants to be like, oh, I, I did it. Yeah, I agree. I did enjoy the sexiness of this uh, film. These days everyone's like, ooh, no, no. Uh, I just don't know how people are going to judge me for watching that thing in case they think I'm somehow leering or exploitative. It's like, oh, man, you know. Oh, I'm very conscious of that. In this film review, I'm very aware of that myself. Like it's fine to try and praise other elements of a movie, like it's action, it's violence, it's um, drama and so on. The minute you start praising the depictions of nudity or sex, you come across as being a little bit of a pervert when <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just an element of the movie and when it's done well, it's worth calling that out. And in a film like The Thomas Crown Affair where you've got two leads in their 40s, which is fantastic, um, it's worth calling out very sensitively and naturalistic portrayals of sex and nudity um, just as acknowledgement of good filmmaking by John McTiernan, the director. Um, we should probably uh, quickly uh, wrap up our combined review here. Um, I thought I'd mention a notable similarity. I'm not sure if this is a coincidence or ripoff, but apparently there's a film from 1989 called <laughs> Unimaginatively The Heist with Piers Brosnan, where there's actually a heist at a horse track which involved multiple men wearing Hawaiian shirts and straw hats. Uh, okay. I have not seen this 1989 Piers Brosnan movie titled The Heist. Oh, I guess isn't that the greatest trick of creativity? Uh, uh-huh. Steal from the best and if you can't steal from the best, you steal from a inferior version and make it better. <laughs> totally, totally. So which film has aged better? I think we'd have to agree the Thomas Crown Affair, but they both stand up. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I mean, neither feel let down uh, or terribly dated by some piece of technology or something you know, um, someone who's only 11 years old or 12 years old who watched Entrapment Now might be confused by the phone boxes. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, but 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 I, I think both both have aged pretty pretty well, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. I think it easily release either of these films today and that stand up, or or possibly remake them. But 
Uh, well, let's get to the Thomas Crown Affair in our sequel pitch later on the pod. So let's jump to the trivia. You're going to like this. Okay. Uh, casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. So did you know that Antoine Foucault was originally attached to direct Entrapment? Yeah, right. Yeah, but apparently he wanted to make the movie more in the kind of action vibe of The Rock, which Sean Connery had starred in very successfully, and Connery thought that just wasn't the right vibe for this movie. So they switched it to, I guess, John, is it Emil? John Emil, yeah, John Emil. Emil was probably, I guess, at that point in time, well, also more experienced, more seasoned than Antoine Fakwa. Uh, coming off, uh, coming off the man who knew too little. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Um, although to be fair to John Emil, um, he had done Copycat, and that was pretty is, successful. You know, yeah. A, yeah, and it's pretty good, pretty good film, pretty good serial killer movie. Um, and he had done Summersby, which is always one of those go-to movies that I think of in terms of those kind of stuffy, you know, stuffy nineties period films about you know um, some. Jaded romance set on the edge of some war. Summersby. Like, we'll always have Summersby. Yeah, that one and the bridges of Madison County um, sort of fall into the same category, I think. Oh, come on. Don't don't compare John O'Meal to Clint. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Clint, Clint's never made a movie as good as The Core. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other interesting casting woulda, shoulda, coulda, um, Nicole Kidman was the original choice for Gin. And also Angela Bassett auditioned as well. Oh, yeah. So that's a different movie, isn't it? Like I, I can see Nicole Kidman in that role. Um, I would have loved to have seen Angela Bassett because she would have, I think, brought more punch to the screen, much more in the vibe of um, Rene Russo from The Thomas Crown Affair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other interesting one was for The Thomas Crown Affair. Um, they looked at other directors, Mike Newell, Andrew Davis, Rob Reiner, and Roger Donaldson. But they circled back to Matin and when the others weren't available because they just thought he was, you know, the best director, which I think they were right about. Yeah. I mean, I'd watch a version of this movie by all of those those guys, you know. Um, I mean, McTiernan, though, pretty pretty iconic, pretty iconic director. Yeah. To me, this was really showing McTiernan stretching himself as well. Like the guy who did all those fantastic action movies like Predator – uh, to bring a sense of comedy and romance to this movie, as well as tension, I just think is massive props because he's pushed himself in a different genre and it works really, really well. I'm surprised Entrapment didn't try and get John McTiernan given that Connery had done a couple of movies with McTiernan right before this, you know, The Hunt for Red October and Medicine Man. Um, yeah, right. Well, maybe they tried and it didn't pay off and so they got basically he got a chance to scratch the caper itch in a different way. Um, anywho, let's move on. Uh, spot the Aussie. Mm. I couldn't see any, could you? Uh, I did not spot any Australians in either of these movies. No. Okay, let's move on to Big Little... Uh, take two. Okay, let's move on to Big Trouble and Little Production. Uh, looks like Entrapment was a reasonably smooth affair to make, but apparently they replaced cinematographer Tom Presley Jr., uh, only eight days into shooting. Oh, sorry, vice versa. Take three. Uh, as for the Thomas Crown Affair, apparently they replaced the cinematographer Ericsson Kaur eight days into shooting with cinematographer 
Tom Priestley, but I couldn't find any reasons why. Wait, Ericsson Corp, oh, what did he, he directed some extreme movie, um, uh, Point Break, the Point Break remake. No, did he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's that's interesting. Okay. I mean, with a name like that, as if you wouldn't, Ericsson Corp. <laughs> Um, okay, let's jump to the box office. So which movie do you think was the box office champ? I'd like to think that both of these movies did really well, um, but I think Entrapment Entrapment was a bit of a smash, wasn't it? Yeah, Entrapment was made for $66 million US. It made $87.5 million domestically in the States plus $124 internationally for a grand total of $212.5 million dollars. As for the Thomas Crown Affair, it was made for a lot less, $48 million. It made $69 million domestically, but only $55 internationally for a total of $124.5 million. So it made almost mm, you know, half of Entrapment. Do you think that was based on the fact that Entrapment cut its lunch by coming out beforehand with a very similar premise? I mean, maybe, maybe. I think it was sort of a weird time. I mean, I've got to try and remember 21 years ago that the Brosnan movies between Bond or any actor who kind of plays Bond in the movies they do between Bonds, I don't know, do they always kind of at the time seem just a little bit like you're really just there for the Bonds? <laughs> like, Yeah, I agree. I mean, except for uh, what's his name who plays the latest Bond? Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Craig. Yeah, Daniel Craig seems to be able to stretch himself and his – Strategy has been to basically lose his accent and play a variety of Southern Americans to really and uglify himself as well to try and really shake off that sort of tuxedo wearing, smooth talking, charismatic Bond character and go in the opposite direction. In this particular instance, but even 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 then though, between you know Quantum of Solace and say Skyfall. Defiance, no one really gave a shit about that. Cowboys and Aliens, no one's so hot on that. Dreamhouse, do you remember that one? You know, it's very hard for actors to shake being Bond between Bonds. Well, it's funny though, but at least here though, I mean, James Pierce Brosnan actually leaned into the Bond. I mean, he's basically playing a Bond-like character. Yeah, totally. And I guess he did that in a couple of these movies, didn't he? Like he said before, after the sunset and... I mean, Pierce Brosnan's played a lot of, you know, he did The Tailor of Panama. So, yeah, X, yeah. Uh, uh, between The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day. And that was a spy movie, a low-key John le Carre spy movie. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, apparently the contract for Pierce Brosnan at the time was so strict in terms of preserving his image as Bond, he wasn't actually allowed to appear in any film wearing a tuxedo with a bow tie. Oh, really? Huh. So that's... Yeah, that's why in that scene where he dances with Rene Russo, which is a really iconic scene in the movie, his shirt's undone and his bow tie's been undone and sort of is hanging around his neck so that it alludes to the fact that he was wearing a bow tie and tuxedo earlier in the scene we don't see off screen, but he's kind of like taken off with the heat of dancing and so on at that point. Mm. Well, I'd like that. They're using their limitations to the, the best effect. Exactly. All right, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. So... Which one do you think impressed the critics and wowed the fans? I'm going to be disappointed if either of these movies are badly reviewed. Well, prepare to be disappointed, Gabe, because Entrapment oh, come on. has only 38% with the critics. What? Yeah, I know. 
And the Thomas Crown Affair, probably not surprisingly, has a much higher score of 70%. I mean, that's interesting with entrapment though, isn't it? Like yeah, that- by no metric is it a a a a bad movie. Oh, we've had podcast episodes looking at films that to me are 25% the quality of Entrapment, scoring above 50%. So I'm really surprised. I sort of feel if you released Entrapment now, the expectations for a film aimed at adults that isn't a superhero movie uh, are so low. I'm actually thinking it'd probably score like a 60%, 70% because it's a romance. It's uh, got very few special effects. Uh, it's grounded. Like, that would just be so welcome, I think, now in 2020. I guess this was just uh, before the time that critics were all bought and paid for by Disney, huh? <laughs> Shots fired. Nice. Uh, all right, have a guess what the fans thought. Again, people got to have liked these, right? Like, come on. So Entrapment has only 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, which really surprises me. And Thomas Crown Affair has 77%. So... The Thomas Crown Affair, much more popular with fans, much more popular with the critics, and does about half the business at the box office. Well, maybe they just grew grew in esteem uh, as time went on. Yeah, perhaps. All right, it's that time, Gabe. Let's do it. It's awards, baby. Awards. Um, oh, sweet. I love these uh, movies from, like, the, the 90s. It always feels like there's great great awards to give away. Yeah. Unlike those movies from ne- closer to now, there's less good ones there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's start with best title. Mm, Entrapment's pretty good, but there's something about the Thomas Crown Affair that's just evocative. So what I love in Entrapment is actually out of the title. That's always a contentious thing when they use the title in dialogue in the movie. But, oh, it's not contentious. It's awesome. I love it. But in this movie, they actually say it's not entrapment what's unfolding on screen. Which it, are, are you suggesting it would be better if this movie was called That's Not Entrapment? <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on movies that actually use the character's name, like John Carter from Mars? Uh, I mean, I, I guess it depends on the movie. Like Michael Clayton's a fantastic movie. Could it be called Compromised Lawyer? Yeah. Is that a better title? No. <laughs> like. <laughs> Seduct- sedu- seductive Detective. <laughs> totally. If the Thomas Crown Affair was called Seductive Detective, I would watch the shit out of that movie, but I would be expecting a movie very different to this, you know, some probably like Naked Killer or something like that. Um, um, but, yeah, I'm, I, like, I like it when they put the – a character's name in the title. I guess they're trying to say this character is, you know, iconic or something. Totally. Yep. Yep. You read my mind. Um, it's like saying, it's basically saying, you don't know this character, but you will and you should. Yeah. Because this is the best damn character of all time. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's Michael Clayton and other times it's Roman J. Israel. Oh, ouch. Actually, that's really unfair because the, the latter movie is pretty good too. I guess it's just not as good as Michael Clayton. Same director. Yeah. I think they're both great titles. I think if you're trying to get bums on seats, I think Entrapment's actually a better title. But I like the use of the word affair and the Thomas Crown affair, which relates to me, you know, the relationship. It's, you know, playing on the relationship and the drama. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's an affair romantically and it's, an, it's a, a current affair in terms of being a drama with the police department. Yeah. So, uh, which way, Gabe? I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go for the Thomas Crown Affair because it just seems sweeping and classy. Yeah, okay. All right, let's give it 
to the Domus of Crown Affair by a whisker. A whisker. Okay. Now, I'm very disappointed with the next awards here. Uh, very disappointed. So. Oh, okay. Best poster. These films are fantastic films, but by golly, by gosh, they have shitty posters. So the Entrapment poster, and if you're listening on your podcast, check your phone. If you have a certain app, you'll be able to see both posters side by side. The Entrapment poster has Catherine Zeta-Jones looking very seductive in a black leotard, standing kind of like arms crossed, you know, legs, hips kicked out to the side and like lasers shooting across the poster with his giant ominous head of Sean Connery in the background. Um, I suppose it kind of picks up on the, you know, that the vibe of Catwoman from the 60s Batman movies or the Tim Burton Batman movie. Um, And then in The Thomas Crown Affair, it's just a shot of Pierce Brosnan side on, giant head, and Rene Russo's giant head facing the viewer behind his. That's sort of like an, an ABBA, an ABBA cover. Yeah, yeah, it's totally like an album cover from for a band. Um, oh, look, I love these movies, but to me these posters are so disappointing. All, all Sean Connery movie posters are giant Sean Connery heads. Like you could just switch out Catherine Zeta-Jones there for, who was it? Was it Derek Luke in Finding Forrester? <laughs> you know, same poster. You switch out Catherine Zeta-Jones for Richard Gere and you've got the first night poster. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. You know, all Connery movies back then were just giant Connery heads uh, looking. Yeah. Look, you know, I've got to give it to Entrapment myself because the Thomas Crown Affair poster to me is such a nothing poster. Like, it's so disappointing. It's basically saying this is Thomas Crown and perhaps the person behind him is the person he's having the affair with and enjoy the movie. Like, I, I just find it so unsophisticated and it's, yeah, it's just boring. So I'm giving it to Entrapment, which I'm not happy about because it's not a great poster either. You- okay. Well, I will grudgingly uh, go along with this as I agree. Neither of these uh, really set the world on fire, do they? At least at least with the Thomas Crown affair, have a shot of make it Pierce Brosnan on a, on a speeding catamaran. You know, or or have him like wearing like the boat, the um, had the artwork with the um, the apple and the uh, bowler hat, uh, son of man, the painting. Like, do a riff on a painting. Like, have the characters in the paint style of Matisse or something. Like, do something like that. You could have done something like that. So disappointing. Okay, moving on. Okay, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So who, like those guys jumping into Armageddon. Who got their first big break in these twin movies, starting with Entrapment? I mean, I don't did Catherine Zeta-Jones did this after The Mask of Zorro, so it can't be her, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, she would probably have – it was released a year later and in that film she was a damsel in distress and here she's a lead, an empowered woman as well. So you could potentially give it to her. The other really out-of-left-field one is potentially – one of the screenwriters with a story credit, Michael Hertzberg, who hasn't written anything else since. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I always like it when we give it to the writers count. They don't count as below the line, but like non, non-cast non awards. Um, 
Um, so, okay, that's a good uh, that's a good nominee. And with the Thomas Crown Affair, I had another screenwriter, uh, Kurt Wimmer, who kind of, I guess, had made films before, but this was really a big jump up for him. Ah, Kurt Wimmer. People will recall his work with Equilibrium, that um, uh, very dumb, no, very dumb movie for smart people. No, very smart movie for dumb people. Well, aren't I the idiot for getting that round the wrong way? Um, the the <laughs> That film is basically The Matrix meets... 1984 or Brave New World? Oh, any 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 dystopian novel. It's like, would a Brave New World or Fahrenheit 451 be improved by Gun Fu? No, it's Gun Gun Carter. Gun Carter. If your answer is yes, I know. But like, but the period where people could refer to Gun Carter and people would actually know what that is, <laughs> uh, eighteen years later, has now passed. <laughs> You know, so so if if you're writing up your pitch documents about your your prospective screenplay you want made, don't put Gun Carter in. People will be like, "The fuck is this shit?" <laughs> but um, look, Equilibrium. Everyone has a soft spot for that movie. It's so do- do- so dopey. I need to watch that again. In the meantime, Ugh. let's hand our award to well, if we if we can even find him, wherever Michael Hertzberg is these days. I hope he's not resting in peace. But Michael, we have an award for you. It may be the only award you get in filmmaking, but It comes to us with good intent. The Bill Fleck Big Break Award. All right, let's do the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them. Starting with Entrapment, I couldn't really find any nominees in this movie at all. So I had to jump ahead to The Thomas Crown Affair and nominated Mark Mangolis. He's great, isn't he? What a voice. He played Tio Salamanca with the ringing little bell in the wheelchair in Breaking Bad. Um, oh man, he should record, maybe he does, record audiobooks. Oh, he's great, isn't he? They'd be, they'd be so menacing. <laughs> like, Didn't he appear in Stigmata as well or End of Days in one of our previous podcast episodes? Yeah, he's the Pope, I think, in End of Days, isn't he? Yeah, that, that rings bells. Um, well, I've got a nominee for the Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, there's an actor in it called Richie Costa who plays a great, um, he always plays a great wise guy. If you go check out Richie Costa on IMDb. But come on, let's give it to Mark Margolis. He's great. All right, Mark gets it. All right, done. Uh, let's move on to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stealer Award, named after Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. In these twin movies, who stole the show despite being in a poor or smallly written role? Um, well, Ben, I feel like we we're always going to have that discussion around scenery chewing. Um so I'm going to go with Maury Chaikin for Entrapment, who just dials his performance to 11 here. He plays Conrad Green, the the uh, Malaysia-based, um, is he an art dealer? Is that what he is? Uh, or fence or whatever. Or, uh, and he's just, he's, just, he's just kind of gross and corpulent in the role. I'm a big fan of the choices that he makes. Oh, yeah, he makes a choice and goes for it. I actually had him down for the Chewing the Scenery Award later on. For this award, I had Will Patton, ah, who plays, and, and what a wig he's wearing, and yeah, wig and moustache combo. So ah. viewers might know him from Armageddon, The Postman, or No Way Out, but um, yeah, I love it. He doesn't have much to do on screen, but he's damn good in it. So I think he's great. Um, how about the Thomas Crown Affair? The Thomas Crown Affair. Who? Ah, I mean, can we give Dennis? I think Dennis Leary. Can, we, can I can I offer him up for this? Do you think at all? Yep, playing the character, the detective Michael McCann. I had him as a nominee, 
And also Michael Lombard, who plays a tour guide, Bobby. Oh, yeah, he's quite good in he's quite good in it, isn't he? Well, it's a small role, but the fact that Pierce Brosnan calls him Bobby about 15 times and he's actually really charismatic in this tiny role. So I'm actually leaning towards giving it to him. Uh, actually, I'm actually leaning to give it, give it to him for the award. Giving it to him for the award. What does that mean? Well, he's a nominee, but is he deserving to actually win it? Oh, sure. What do you- Give it to Michael Lombard. Done. All right. Moving on, the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on to bigger roles. So, Entrapment. Any nominees? There's not really any big squanderers here, are there? I mean- not in Entrapment. Who have you got? Do you? Well, I guess just Michael Hertzberg, who also didn't kick on. So he's a nominee. I mean, he could have actually parlayed this to something else with that story credit and never has for whatever reason. I mean, you could say John Amiel, after this, he made The Core, which I think I bring up on this podcast a fair amount because I- You do, a lot. <laughs> I, I do. I, I like that movie a lot. <laughs> it's <laughs> insanely stupid, but a hell of a cast. Um, and- you know, it's like the really low rent version of the early two thousands disaster movies. So some might say he, you know, leveraged the yeah yeah th- directing a hit by, you know, making something of a disaster movie turkey. But but not me, not me. So I cannot <laughs> I cannot uh, nominate him here. Um, I guess you could also nominate the model who played the actor. Uh, sorry, or the yeah, the model, the model who played uh, the daughter, Anna. Was she a famous? Well, she was a model. Catwalk. She's actually a model called Esther Canades. And, I mean, that was her one and done only role on screen. Um, look, she wasn't very good. She's the one who plays the granddaughter or the daughter of one of the forgers on screen. And she looks like she's a size four, incredibly emaciated with this huge pout like she has lips full of collagen and walks around looking like a very serious Eastern European model. I mean, I guess you could have, could have tried to parlay this appearance into other movies, but I feel like, unfortunately, Michael will get it again, uh, who won for the earlier award, but now gets he got his, got his big break and didn't take advantage of it. What do you think? Okay, fair enough. All right. The winner-winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies, uh, like an actor, supporting actor, director, etc.? And was it their career high? Catherine Zeta-Jones in Entrapment. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think this is a star-making turn for her. I think also John Amiel. He'd have to be up there, wouldn't he? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, I mean, this was definitely the the apex of his career. And up against in the Thomas Crown Affair, it's got to be Rene Russo, right? Yeah, definitely. So if you're pitting Catherine Cedar-Jones. Ben, this is not one of those podcasts. We will not be pitting women against each other. <laughs> I was going to say, and the director, John Amiel. Oh, okay. And Rene Russo. In that case. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Rene Russo. Ah, definitely, definitely. Because I think she, this was a star. I mean, she was already a star in some respects, but- I think this is a more memorable performance. I mean, check out her 90s, though. Um, uh, Lethal Weapon 3, In the Line of Fire, Outbreak, Get Shorty, Tin Cup, Ransom, Lethal Weapon 4, Thomas Crown Affair, and then then it gets not so great with Bullwinkle and Rocky and Showtime and Two for the Money. Actually, Two for the Money is all right, but there's some pretty great 90s movies in there. Yeah, 
I think I'd call this the apex of her career. Sorry, not this one film, but it was certainly that halcyon period, as you'd say. So The topper. Let's give her the winner-winner chicken dinner award. Sure. All right, best dialogue. Were there any particular quotes, Gabe, that jumped out to you as being memorable? Um, okay, in the Thomas Crown Affair, there's a line that really made me laugh where Pierce Brosnan's like, do you want to dance or do you want to dance? <laughs> it's like so goofy. <laughs> I love that line which he actually ad-libs. You know that part where he's throwing that painting in the Thomas Crown Affair into the fire and then goes to rescue it and she goes, and she just bursts into laughter and it feels so sincere mm. and it was an ad-lib and then she says something like, um, you're not boring, I give you that. Yeah. Actually, on that scene, I actually felt whatever they did at the end of that scene and it might be that ad-lib undercut the scene a little bit. I think it almost tipped the hand. I think because they were doing such a delicate job of making Rene Rousseau's character kind of having to toe that line between being chasing him and uh, sort of falling for Thomas Crown that at the end of that scene, if it was an ad lib, actually tipped it over the edge for me that it sort of gave away a little too much. But gave away what? I don't know, just that she was enjoying herself too much. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Perhaps that was like her relief and excitement of the scene getting the better of her yeah, and not keeping herself guarded enough as a character. Yeah, sort of let the air out of the the balloon or something. I don't know, but if, if clearly it had the opposite effect for you, so I don't know. Yeah, interesting. Um, maybe you're just wrong. Uh, who's, who's to say? <laughs> I love that other line she says in The Thomas Crown Affair, which is, damn, I hate being a foregone conclusion. Mm, mm. Any other lines from Entrapment at all? How about, believe me, I was prepared for everything except you. Who's, whose voice are you doing there, Ben? <laughs> are you doing Connery's or are you doing Catherine Zeta-Jones? Like- actually, I realised I was doing Catherine Zeta-Jones as sultry and then I realised it was actually Max one, uh, Sean Connery. <laughs> but you got to, uh, come on, at least try to. I can't do Scottish. Believe me, I was prepared for everything except you. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, sound more like a character from a video game. Uh, so we're basically going to turn into the, uh, what is that? That that series of films, um, a trip to Italy, and so on. Oh, terrible! Oh, I mean, like, those series of films are great. I just I couldn't hold a candle to you know, <laughs> Steve Coogan or Rob Brydon when it comes to uh, impersonation. Nonetheless, uh, you stole my suitcase. I'm a thief. Show show me. <laughs> yeah, when you've got like so and Sue back to back with that accent. <laughs> show show me. So show me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Should we do the rest of the podcast in a Michael Caine's accent? What do you think? Uh, okay, we can give it. <laughs> we can give it. No, we should not. I, I, I tried it for one second there and just I, the embarrassment flashed in front of my eyes and thought, fuck no. All right, we need a winner then. What's our best dialogue award winner? Um, should I give it to the Thomas Crown Affair? Well, we said more lines from that unless you've got any other great ones from- No, nah, let's give it to them. Let's move on. Okay, okay. The Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. So I gave it to Maury Chaikin from Entrapment in this one. Some might know him from A Life Less Ordinary and Dances with Wolves, but he is shirtless in underpants with makeup and a lot of perspiration. He's going big. He's making choices, and I loved it. Yep, yep. I think he's the the standout 
nominee. I also had another nominee just to consider. I thought Will Patton's hairpiece, the wig. <laughs> so good. Was a potential contender. <laughs> well. Because it's chewing a lot of scenery. Like that hair is doing well, a lot of heavy lifting. Connery's wearing a hairpiece in the film too. Yeah, but his is more naturalistic and seems to include a bit of a receding hairline in it. Whereas Will Patton has gone from Armageddon around the same time to like where he's clearly thinning slash bald to like a sensationally lustrous set of locks. Well, Connery wore a- Try and say lustrous set of locks in your Scottish accent. Sean Connery wore a lustrous set of locks in every original James Bond movie. He's been wearing a hairpiece in every movie he was ever in, you know? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, okay. He's bald. Bald, I tell you. Who'd have thunk it? Okay, let's jump to the. Oh, well, actually, uh, any other nominees? Nah. Let's give it to Maury. Maury. All right. The Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself. Uh, I had Ving Rames mm-hmm. and potentially Sean Connery. And the Thomas Crown Affair, I had Faye Dunaway playing the psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope she got well paid. I like at the opening of the movie. Uh, Thomas Crown is in in session or whatever, and they only reveal her at the very end and you're like, dang, there she is, Faye Dunaway. Yeah, it's quite good. I mean, the fact that she's just called the psychiatrist probably refers to her character being pretty weak. Um, I enjoyed her in the movie and I suppose if you had seen the original where she starred as the Rene Russo character, it's a nice tip to the tip of the hat. Um, look, I don't know, Ving Rhames is there mm. playing the same character he plays in the Mission Impossible films. Um you know, switch out the uh, names of the characters and he's playing the same guy. So for me, that's a paycheck. Yeah, but you do love to see him in movies, don't you? Oh, I do. But I think, you know, Ving is going to get paid for that new beach house. So I think he takes the award. Okay, give it to give it to Ving. All right. The Stephen Toblowski Award is next for Hey, It's That Guy, named after Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day. So Gabe, who triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen starting with entrapment. I mean, we talked about him before, but surely Will Patton is a hey, it's that guy, you know. Oh, definitely. He's like a he's a he's a total hey, it's that guy acting package. Ah, and did we when we did Armageddon, did we talk about the scene in Armageddon where the child points at the screen and literally says, "Hey, it's that guy." <laughs> <laughs> to Will Patton and his mum's like, "No, we didn't." Oh. You know, he's like Hey, mum, mum, it's that salesman. She's like, that's not a salesman. That's your daddy. So so he's the literal point at the screen, hey, it's that guy. Well, he's up against in the Thomas Crown Affair. My nominee is Ben Ganzara. Ben Ganzara, yeah. Who plays Andrew Wallace. Uh, he's from The Big Lebowski, uh, Roadhouse, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Summer of Sam. I don't know. These guys are both, hey, that guy, hey, it's that guy. I feel, though, you, you did say that. Will has actually been called hates that guy. Okay, but what about what about Frankie Faison, who is? Oh yeah, yeah. Who, that detective we talked about before from the from the Wire, coming to America, do the right thing. He was in he was in Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and the Red Dragon remake. You know, he popped up in all of them. I believe he's also actually in Manhunter. Oh wow. Oh gee, okay, this is tough. Um, I thought Will was a lock as both nominee and winner, but. I don't know, with Frankie, I think you've turned me around. I, I feel I'm going to okay. change lanes 
late in the race and handed the Stephen Toblowski Award to Frankie. All right, well, give it to give it to Commissioner Irvin H. Burrell from the wire. Frankie fires on. <laughs> All right, the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. And let it be said that we actually named this award before everyone rediscovered Lindo in uh, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. So let's just claim that first so it's very clear that we were on board the Delroy Lindo Express, you know, for quite a while. So let's go for it. Who in Entrapment, Gabe? Well, these these awards are kind of interesting when we do movies that are like 20 years old because, you know, there was that thing where like Will Patton and Ving Rhames felt like they were in every movie in the 90s. Um, you know, there's these various actors who feel like they were in everything until suddenly they're not. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, why did, where did William H. Macy go? He was in every movie and now he's not. You know, where'd Steve Zahn go? He was in every movie and now he's not. Where'd Ving Rhames go, you know? Well, like like Delroy Lindo, same thing. Yeah, totally. You know, so, so like even though he's had a hell of a career, you know, some fucking iconic roles, still be like, Put Ving in more movies, you know. He's, he's out there in the Mission Impossibles for sure. But apart from that, it's just a lot of sort of DTV stuff. And I miss him in, uh, in, in, in the big films. Yeah, okay. So who's your nominee in these two movies? Well, in these two movies, like I said, Ving for Entrapment and then maybe Ben Gazzara for Thomas Crown Affair or, or Pierce Brosnan for Thomas Crown Affair. Put Pierce in more movies. Yeah, it is weird. I mean... He hasn't been as many films as he could. Uh, he was in Dante's Peak Gabe, another podcast ep in the uh, Twin Movies lineup. Um, uh, I do think Ving Rhames is great. Um, I'm surprised we don't see him in more movies. I suspect he's doing a lot of straight to DVD, straight to TV, straight to VOD movies, right? Yeah, yeah, a whole bunch. If you scroll down his um, IMDb, there's a fair whack of things you'd be like, I have no idea what Pimp Bullies is or Julia X. And those two films or The River Murders might all be good, but, yeah, you know, Ving deserves better than Death Race 2. <laughs> um, you know, he deserves more Piranha 3Ds. That's what... Uh, look, I don't have much skin in this game, so I'm going to leave it with you to make the call. Who's the award winner of the Delroy Lindo? Well, let's give it to let's give it to Ving. Let's give it to Ving. Why not? All right, Ving. Hopefully this will lift your career from all that VOD trash you're doing. Oh, well, he's still probably getting good money for Mission Impossible. Ving, I'm sure Ving is living comfortably, you know. I'm sure he is. Uh, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, did any characters steal the cake for the most ludicrous name? Did they ever Did they ever say what Max first? I presume Mac is his surname, right? I'm assuming it's just he's something like, Someone Mac something, you know, and Mac Mac's an abbreviation of that. Yeah, I like the name Mac. I had it as my nominee for this award, but truth be told, I actually like it. I think it's a really. But it's no, it's no Thibodeau. Ving Rhames character called Thibodeau. Oh yeah, that's a big name, isn't it? Yeah, that's you know actually yeah. Saying hearing that now, he must be definitely a nominee. How about Thomas Crown? You mean the name Thomas Crown? No weird or wacky. No, no, in the movie. Were there any nominees there? Not really. At least they gave their characters first names and surnames. And Thomas Crown is a very movie name, but, you know, it's no cold trickle when it comes to silly names, is it? (laughs) All right, Bing gets it again, okay? The Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about. 
until you rewatch these movies. Well, we discussed a few of these earlier, right? But I'd totally forgotten that the end of Entrapment has the whole big series of crosses and double crosses that it turns out Ving Rhames is an FBI agent and that, you know, uh, uh, Connery has been setting Catherine Zeta-Jones up since early and uh, I forgot that whole double, triple bluff thing happened there. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also always forget about how that scene unfolds on the train line at the end in Entrapment, just, you know, the nature of that. Um, Weirdly, actually, in Entrapment, because it had been a few years since I watched this, I forgot that there was the final heist in Malaysia and I thought that the the topper of the movie or the, you know, the the big the big steel was actually the one where she crawls under the lasers and stuff. So when it got to that and it was only like 50 minutes into the movie, I was like, is this a 71-minute movie? <laughs> Your dream movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, my God, they made it. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Gabe, you can call this one again because I can't think of anything that really jumps out that much. For me, it's Look, probably going to be... The, the the train scene at the end. And I've got to say, that you mentioned that last heist. I think the heist in Malaysia is pretty forgettable. Like there's a scene, you know how they kind of go up the building and stuff and then she unhooks the USB too early and it caused the alarm to go off. Mm. To me, that scene's pretty unmemorable and I couldn't describe to you beat for beat their escape path where, I mean, they kind of – run around the building a few times, they climb across those lights and then they jump down that air vent. But it's not as memorable as, say, the earlier scene with the lasers. No, totally. I guess that's probably why I forgot it. But, look, I want to give it to the Thomas Crown Affair because I'd forgotten how awesome its final heist was scored to that um, piece of music, Cineman. Oh, you forgot. That's How could you? That's like the iconic part of the movie. Okay, I'll let you give the award, but I will. Well, I haven't seen this movie since Paris, you know, in 2000, so I'm sorry. Oh, well, maybe we'll do another rewatch together, Gabe, side by side, during the sexy scenes. Okay. Ooh, nice. It'd be like watching it with my dad. Not that you're the age of my dad, I just mean it'll be awkward. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, I'm offended regardless. <laughs> nice. nice. Okay, the Die Hard Award. It's, it's, it's weirder for me when I accidentally call you dad, so, you know, <laughs> it, could be, it could be odd for both of us, Ben. <laughs> um, oh, I'm moving on. <laughs> uh, the Die Hard Award. Uh, did any of these movies like Die Hard inspired Under Siege? Inspire a crop of clones. I'm just trying to think. I don't think so. I, think, I kind of wish they had. I think I agree. I think we discussed the point that there should be more movies like Focus, which are romantic caper movies. Mm, yeah, it's a real shame that this didn't spring off a, a whole period of, yeah, oh well. Oh well. Someone can bring it back now. All right. Well, let's move on to that time of the podcast. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Entrapment or The Thomas Crown Affair. Now, they're both very similar films. They're both about an attractive female insurance investigator and a male thief who steals an expensive painting by a famous artist. So there's a studio executive saying, we need a sequel. Which one do you want to make a sequel to and how will you make it? What's our pitch to make it? Go. It's interesting, It's interesting, Ben, because 
you know, we we just we just freestyle on these. You know, we don't go away and workshop our pitches for months ahead of this high-powered meeting. But thinking about it now, I don't think the relationships in either of these movies are going to last. Like, I feel like in both cases, in Entrapment, a few years later, Sean Connery will be dead of old age. You know, he'll just be a desiccated and a husk, uh, just some old man filling his diapers and a a young globe-trotting thief isn't going to want to have to deal with that. So Catherine Zeta-Jones will fairly quickly move on. And in The Thomas Crown Affair, I feel the character of Thomas Crown is more interested in the thrill of the chase than actually keeping the reward. You know, he would return the painting that he had stolen days before. And is he? he's never not going to be able to not continue stealing. And she is going to want to keep trying to chase him. At least if they're the same age, that would lend itself to a sequel. But I feel like these are both doomed romantic relationships. The films end on on high notes in terms of their in terms of their love, but I don't know, when you when you step it through, I feel like these are these are doomed. Well, apparently Entrapment 2 uh, was going to follow Gina she struggled to cope with the loss of Mac who died because Sean Connery retired from acting in 2003. Oh, did they explain how he died? No. He got, like, shanked in prison? No, well, I mean, it was just basically like a basic pitch or concept as to how you do a sequel to it. Um, so, yeah, that's how that was going to work out in real life. Now, as for the Thomas Crown Affair, that's interesting because apparently in January 2007 it was reported that a sequel would be a loose remake of the 1964 film Top Cappy. Uh, so basically another remake and Paul uh, Paul Van Hoven was attached to direct, but he left apparently in 2010 and obviously he's passed away since. And there was actually a script written by John Rogers from a story by himself and Harley Patent, but it's never got on. So there's that. But then apparently in April 2014, in an edition of Empire Magazine, John McTiernan revealed that he had actually written a script for the sequel, The Thomas Crown Affair, while in prison called Thomas Crown and the Missing Lioness. Okay, I don't love that title, but, um, but yeah, McTiernan in jail. That's funny. Well, they do say if you try to write, right, you turn off your social media, lock the door. They say the best writing is that expression, bum on seat. Well, if you're in prison, plenty of time to, uh, you know, spend that screenplay. So yeah. It- that's right. All, all the writer's best work gets done after they're sent to jail for lying to the FBI. Um, <laughs> you know. But here's the trouble is that, and I've been dying to do this part of the uh, pod, here's the problem is that they've already made a sequel to The Thomas Crown Affair and it's called After the Sunset. I mean- I know you love this movie. I love this movie. Now, this is a movie by a now problematic director, Brett Ratner, it has, though, Pierce Brosnan basically playing the same character he played in The Thomas Crown Affair. It has Selma Hayek, who's, again, doing the kind of um, empowered, sexy, uh, autonomous, intelligent character, much like Rene Russo. And you've got, like, a Dennis Leary character uh, played by Woody Harrelson. Like, it is – I'm stunned that they didn't just retitle this film – the Thomas Crown Affair too. I mean, it must be made by a different studio because to me, it's a great idea. Even the title, After the Sunset, if you're making a sequel to a heist movie 
which no one seems to do because everyone thinks the drama is the heist, do what they did in this movie. You go, okay, if you were robbing for the thrill of it, which is what Thomas Crown was doing in that movie, and then you retire, you've lost the thrill. You've lost the thrill of the hunt, of the heist. And after Sunset captures what happens is that he just has to scratch that itch just one more time. So that's why I think it's a perfect sequel to that movie. So I don't know where you go. I think it's the best version of a sequel. So I think we're stuck in a situation where we're having to do a sequel to Entrapment or we basically do a sequel to After the Sunset. Well, I mean, you could do a film where Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo realise after two years of a relationship that it's got a bit stale um, because because all they had was the the thrill of that. And so they, in a sort of Mr and Mrs Smith-like way, um, in an attempt to rekindle that lost romance, they uh, basically recreate those roles somehow um, or you somehow flip it so Renee starts stealing stuff and uh, the police turn to a, a someone who might be able to provide them with information on, you know, robberies and they turn to Thomas Crown to help catch a, a, a new thief on the scene who turns out to be Rene Rousseau. Oh, interesting. What if you did a version like Silence of the Lambs where we basically imagine this Thomas Crown sequel is either a sequel to After the Sunset, so stuff has happened in between. He's been jailed and he's like the, the Lecter character, Hannibal, in Silence of the Lambs where he's in prison and maybe Dennis Leary comes to him in prison and says, we need to catch her. Will you help me? And if you do, you'll get out of jail early. And so he's conflicted, right? He wants to get out of jail, but he wants to, but he doesn't want to actually, you know, put her in jail. So what does he do? Well, he's got to get out of jail and then somehow help her because we can't have Thomas Crown stuck behind glass the whole movie. How does Renee, how do he and, how does Pierce and Renee have chemistry through glass. I mean, it's not, um, um, what's that movie? Billy, I'm here for you, Billy. Okay, how about this? How about the? How about this? The film starts with him in jail and her doing a heist of sorts as in a prison break to free him from jail and then they have to do something together after that. So she's gone rogue, basically. She's gone rogue. Well, basically, well, she was, once it's found out, once he's arrested, right, so he did say in the film, look, I'll teach you how to hide money, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the film, she implicitly escapes with him, right? And off they go into the, into the sunset. Now, if he's caught and then she's on the run, he she can't live without him. So she's And she also loves the thrill of the heist as well. So she has to break him out of prison and then they've got to like either go on the run again together and that's our movie or maybe they've been framed and they have to break in somewhere else to get some evidence to clear their names. Totally, totally. But in amidst all that is the revelation that Thomas can actually only get can only get hard stealing Magritte's. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, that's his Viagra. For, yeah, that exactly. Um, the the Faye Dunaway turns up, you know, again as the psychiatrist to 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 fill in this little detail uh, of psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis. And then what's the substantive part of the film? Are they trying to break into, say, an evidence locker? I don't I don't know, Ben. I feel like I feel like uh, uh, D- 
deep diving and digging down into the psychology of Thomas Crown's inability to sexually perform unless he's literally stealing a Magritte should be the point of the movie. But, hey, look, if you want to make it a heist thing, you do you, buddy. The studio executive is looking at his watch. (laughs) He's wondering what the hell's going on. He needs answers. So we need to actually pitch the rest of this movie quick smart. What's it going to be? Well, I do like uh, Pierce and Renee teaming up. Uh, she's now outside of the law to to do a, a daring new set of heists, whether they're breaking in or breaking out. Um, and now they're 60, 65 years old. It's going to be, that's a, you do not see that movie very often. No, you don't. Um, do, we, do they have kids? Are they trying to... Fr- oh, God, let's not do that. That's, <laughs> that's fucking awful. Uh, okay, so... Well, we need a tie bow on this. So how do we conclude the movie? What's our sort of third act? How do we bring it home? Well, does it turn out that Renee never left, as they say in Ronan? She's always been an insurance investigator and now she's finally got her man. Oh, so hang on. Does she then jail him after freeing him? I'm confused. Yeah, totally. I don't know. (laughs) Wow. I just wanted to say I never left. (laughs) This would have to be one of your laziest pitches of all time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do you mean? It was all there in the Viagra thing. I don't know if that's too crude. <laughs> all right, let's let's uh, let's wrap this up. What's our title going to be? The, the Affair of Thomas the Crown? <laughs> Come on, the, give me a title. The Thomas Crown Affair. Hold on, let me think. Let me think. Let us, let, us, let us steeple our fingers and put our heads together and think. More Thomas Crown Affairs. <laughs> The continued adventures of Thomas Crown and his affairs. What if he actually has an affair in this one? Like it's it's just called the Thomas Crown affair, and it's about a literal affair. So is it like uh, is it like a sort of um, single white female movie, like a femme fatale story, where basically now she decides she does want to be an investigator again to punish him for his transgression? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's scenes from a marriage. Um, <laughs> I don't know. So the pitch is basically this is marriage story meets the Thomas Crown Affair. <laughs> yeah, like they keep ruining their heist by having these explosive volcanic arguments in the midst of, you know, the, the museums. Uh, you never put glad wrap or plastic over the food when it goes back in the fridge. Yeah, that's right. Where it's like, like, like you knew I was a thief and now you resent me for it, you know. I could have I could have had sex with any of those women, but I didn't because I love you. You know. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay. Uh, I think we have to call it the Thomas Crown Affairs. Okay. Sure. Done. Sure. In lieu of a better, in lieu of a better one. Wow, this is one of our worst pitches ever. And that's how you make a sequel to the 1999 caper romantic drama, The Thomas Crown Affair, called. The Thomas Crown Affairs. Oh, we could call it the Catherine Banning Affair. Oh, nice. Oh, I like that. That's good. That's good. I feel we've actually now have to re-pitch the whole movie, but I still like that. All right, Gabe, let's uh, tie a bow on this bad boy and uh, call it a day. Um, big thanks to our editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so spectacular. Gabe, uh, over to you. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Uh, Twitter. At Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Insta and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this pod and all the others in the usual places like Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, folks. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Gabe and I had a ball. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Goodbye, Ben. Goodbye, Ben.